Hello, and you are listening to Eco Justice Radio, a project of SoCal 350 Climate Action. Our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame featuring voices not necessarily heard on mainstream media. Eco Justice Radio acknowledges that we record the show on the traditional territory of the Tongva and all of their relatives. Welcome, I am Jessica Aldridge. On today's show, Feeding Tomorrow, Transforming the Future of Food, I will be interviewing Oliver English, who is a filmmaker, chef, and food advocate. Oliver is the co-founder and CEO of Common Table Creative, an impact-driven production and hospitality company specializing in advancing global food, sustainability, and social justice issues. Common Table Creative works with the world's leading NGOs, nonprofits, and innovative food companies to tell stories about the power of food and drive change through inspiring individual action. documentary Feeding Tomorrow explores the intersection between the food we eat, our personal and community health, and protection and regeneration of ecosystems. In today's interview, Oliver English shares the stories of visionary leaders in agriculture, healthcare, and education working to build a more just food system in their local communities, giving rise to a new global vision for Feeding Tomorrow. Oliver illustrates tangible working examples of regenerative farming methods that not only grow healthy food, but also heal both the land and the people. As a professional chef that grew up in a restaurant family, he makes the case for why restaurants and chefs must have an intimate knowledge of their food system impact and how they can be part of the solution. All of that and more on today's show. Thank you for tuning in to Eco Justice Radio and our show, Feeding Tomorrow, Transforming the Future of Food. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge, and it is my honor to welcome our guest, Oliver English, co-founder and CEO of Common Table Creative and filmmaker, chef, and food advocate. Welcome to Eco Justice Radio. So much for having me, Jessica. I really appreciate being here. Looking forward to speaking with you. I am looking forward to it as well and getting to know about this film that you've been working on for quite a long time, actually. You, I think it was you and your brother, right, recently wrapped on this documentary called The Future of Food, which is hitting the film festival circuit. Can you, in a very brief way, tell us the premise of the film? The film is called Feeding Tomorrow, and it is a documentary about the future of food. And we, you're right, we have been working on it for the past six years. And our goal and our vision was to showcase a very solutions-oriented, positive vision for the future of food. One that showcased food as an interconnected solution to the biggest environmental, health, and social justice we face as a nation and around the world. And so we feature some of the world's leading farmers, chefs, climate scientists, entrepreneurs, nutritionists people really working on solutions, proven solutions to help move us into a healthier, more sustainable world. 
And what led you to making this film? What inspired you to say, I'm, I, cause I don't think you were a filmmaker before making this film, correct? That's absolutely right. And had you asked me several years ago, if we would be sitting here talking about, about, about this today, I would say, I, I think you're crazy. But I grew up very connected to food. I grew up in the restaurant business. My parents are chefs. They met at cooking school. I grew up, anyone who's worked in the restaurant business knows that you end up spending a bunch of time working, working in it. And, you know, from when I was very young, I was washing dishes, bussing tables, making pizzas, working the front door, working the bar, really every job you can envision and imagine in the restaurant business. I ended up growing into a role designing, developing and opening restaurants around the world. I studied hospitality and restaurant management and design at Cornell. And I was you know, pretty connected to the world of food and knew a lot about it, or so I thought. And about six years ago, I was living and working in Abu Dhabi to open a new restaurant. Um, my job was to go and be the front guy and get the restaurant up and running in different parts of the world and live there for a period of time. And about two weeks before we were going to open this restaurant, I was sitting at the bar one night. I had sent the staff home after training, and I ordered a big you know, steak, salad, bunch of sides, whole big spread. And I had this kind of, I guess, epiphany moment. And I cut into a steak and I looked down, I looked at all this food and I was like, wait a minute, where did all this food come from? You know, I'd been in the desert for three months, hadn't seen the farm, hadn't seen a fresh body of water. And it occurred to me that I never really asked that question. And so I asked our chef to come out and we proceeded to have a very long conversation about where each one of the ingredients came from. Ended up being 10 plus ingredients from eight countries or something, something in that realm. And we talked about where is the tomato from? You know, when was it harvested? How long ago was it harvested? What is the transportation system it got, it took to get here from trucks to planes or boats to another truck, et cetera, et cetera. And after we went through all these ingredients and ingredients from Australia and Europe and the United States, I, I was just shocked at the environmental impact of this meal. You know, I didn't calculate exact carbon impact, but it was very clear that this was absurd. And I realized, again, in that moment that I had never asked the question, where does food come from? I had never thought that it may have a broader impact on the world around us. And I thought that someone like me who grew up in the business, so connected to it, studied in school, parents are chefs, et cetera, if I was incredibly disconnected, maybe there were others who were disconnected as well. And I got back to New York. I started asking some friends, you know, where the blueberries are from, et cetera. And they said, you know, the grocery store. And I said, wow, there is a pretty big disconnection here. Fast forward three months later, I was opening a restaurant in the Bahamas. Again, all the food looked very sad. It was coming into the United States. I asked them to bring me to a local farmer, to try to get some food for the restaurant. I ended up spending three hours with this guy, Sakane, who I met, who was a Bahamian farmer. And he had a love and passion and joy for food and farming that was just incredible. And he said that the weather patterns he grew up with are so different from the ones today that he doesn't know what to plant. We saw in the distance these massive, massive trash fires. And he said there used to be 12,000 farms in the Bahamas. Now there are 1,200. Everything gets in, shipped in. 90% of the food gets shipped in. A lot of it on styrofoam trays wrapped in plastic. And there's so much waste and trash, they send it to the landfill and they burn it. And he also said that he was one of the first people in his family to kind of go more plant forward and not develop chronic disease. So here is this guy who is up against all of these challenges, and he still has boots on the ground, hands in the soil, and a very positive outlook for the future. He was the first person to explain to me on the farm 
in the plants, amongst the plants, how interconnected our food is to all of these different issues. And after this meeting, I was like, more people need to meet farmers. It took me 27 years of my life to meet a farmer. And this guy changed my entire worldview in three hours. 27 years and you're a chef. Correct. And I grew up, again, in the restaurant business. And I, it was very clear to me that I think more people need to meet farmers. My little brother was at the New York Film Academy. I called him. He said, tell him we're going to come film an interview with him. And I honestly had no idea what I was doing in those days. But I told him that we're going to be back in three months. And we filmed our first interview with him and the, the team and family he was working with to transition this land and provide healthy food to the folks in the Bahamas. And that was the beginning. Um, after that interview, it was very clear to my brother and I that we had to pursue this. We wanted to tell these stories. We wanted to tell stories about food and farming. And that was the beginning of the journey of the film. And we're going to start, we're going to talk about some of those stories later in this conversation. I want to set up a little bit of the background about farming, right? You know, why you, you explained why this was so important on just people not really knowing where their food is from. But like, what are some of these farming practices, right? What is considered conventional farming? And how is it destructive to the environment when compared to what we'll get into more sustainable options? And, you know, through the film and through our production company, Common Table Creative, we've had the opportunity to visit 60 plus farms around the world and spoken with a number of the most sustainable, regenerative, biodynamic, organic, et cetera, farmers who are working in the future of food. And so to answer your question, the the way that we think about what is called conventional agriculture, really there's not much conventional about it, but what we refer to these days is the suite of agrochemical industrialized agriculture. And so if anyone's ever driven through the Midwest and seen just endless fields of corn or soy, the chances are pretty high that that is agro-industrial agriculture. And what that really depends on is this idea of monocropping. So instead of growing multiple different things and animals and plants in one system, you get rid of all the trees, you get rid of all the hedgerows, you get rid of anything that you can't plant corn on. And the Americans, you know, in the 60s, 70s, created this agrochemical system where we, we clear everything, we grow one type of crop, we genetically modify the seeds to withstand huge amounts of herbicide and pesticide, and we mass produce corn or soy or wheat generally with incredible amounts of pesticides. And what this has done to our environment is staggering. We have decimated entire populations of pollinators. We have pumped so much toxicity into our soils. And when you remove all of the other parts of the system and just grow one thing in a monocrop, that soil then becomes incredibly susceptible to things like drought and floods and heat waves because the health of the soil is dependent on the interconnection of all these different elements. And so when you just base growing one type of plant with on chemical fertilizers, one type of plant that require a lot of chemical herbicides and pesticides, you're growing crops that look, you know, healthy. And if you drive by them, you might think, oh, that looks healthy. But in reality, they are deficient in nutrients. They are not healthy. And the soil that they are growing in is really dirt. 
And the difference between dirt and soil is that soil is teeming with life. You ever picked up some soil from a garden or somewhere and there's worms in it and bugs and ants and all that kind of stuff? That is healthy soil. But if you go into one of these fields and you pick up some of this dust or dirt, it flutters away in your hand. And so that is the big, one of the biggest challenges we face. Agro, the, the industrialized system is one of the biggest contributors to climate change, biodiversity loss, um, pumping toxic chemicals into our entire ecosystem from soils. Those, you know, th those chemicals famously run off into rivers, into the Mississippi, for example, down into the Gulf of Mexico. They create dead zones. It is a uh, horribly devastating form of agriculture. And now we are really seeing, and we have seen in the past couple decades, the externalities that that system is causing and has caused. Yeah. And, you know, and the other externality too is, you know, we're not eating all of the food that's being produced as well. And then when that food is landfilled, because it's not all being composted, state of California passed composting legislation to make it more accessible. However, it's not all being composted. So when it's going into landfills, what is it doing? Absolutely. It's producing methane. And yep. so right now, 40 to 50 percent, nearly half of the food that we grow goes to landfills. And that is an insult to the people who don't have enough food, to farmers, to our environment, really to the entire system. And the reason for that is in the 70s, an agricultural economist named Earl Butts and the Nixon administration put in, created this system that said, get big or get out. And it incentivized, and we and the United States government, we the United States taxpayers, are, are, in, are federally subsidizing the growth of corn and soy and wheat and producing way too much of it. That inexpensive corn and soy and wheat gets reduced to its individual components. It gets turned into processed food, junk food, food for, you know, feed. a lot of it goes to feed for animals and cattle. And we produce so much food now that so much of it gets wasted. And the biggest problem is in, the, in, in, these, in this country, in, in other parts of the world, a lot of food waste occurs uh, downstream so, uh, or, or upstream on the farm because they don't have great storage, that kind of thing. Here in the wealthier world, a lot of the food waste, the majority of it happens downstream, which means effectively that at the grocery stores, in our homes, you know, at, at restaurants, kind of when it gets closer to the consumer. But we waste so much food. And because it's organic matter, once it goes to a landfill, it is worse than carbon. Methane is, is a far worse toxin than yeah. and greenhouse gas than emission. Yeah, exactly. it's 10 times more potent than green. Uh, it's a 10 time more potent greenhouse gas emission in comparison exactly. to carbon and its, and its short life cycle. Oliver, in your documentary, Feeding Tomorrow, you explore an array of different farming practices, and you've sort of alluded to those over the past few minutes. Let's talk about some of those. But I think first, we just need to briefly lay the groundwork and define permaculture. Sure. So permaculture and a lot of these farming practices are really agroecological approaches to farming, which means working in harmony with nature and and setting up systems that resemble a biodiverse ecosystem. So instead of just planting one type of crop, 
the health of the ecosystem is really dependent upon diversity. And so you want to have trees and bushes and shrubs and various different types of plants and animals roaming through the system. And in, in so doing, every single pest has a predator and you create balance in the ecosystem. And the goal of the sustainable systems is to enhance the health of the system through time. So that's what a lot of these ideas are about. Well, let's jump into one of those that you mentioned in your documentary, which is agroforestry. Explain that. Absolutely. Agroforestry is simply the combination of agriculture and forestry. So in a lot of places, you know, you'll see just uh, an orchard, maybe just all apple trees, or you'll see a farm that's just growing lettuce, for example. Agroforestry is the combination of tree crops and sort of traditional plants and different types of crops. And what you do, what you're doing in that system is you're maximizing the space that you have. You're growing up and you're growing out. And some plants like more shade. So you can plant those in alleys in between the rows of trees. And what you're doing is you're creating an ecosystem effect. So instead of having to spray chemicals and pesticides on these plants, because there's trees there, there's places for birds to come and rest and nest. And now the birds are going to go and eat the pests off of the lettuce. So you have an agroecological benefit. You also have a financial benefit for the farmer. Instead of just growing one thing, the farmer could grow multiple different things throughout the year, multiple different revenue streams. And as we think about resilience to a more climate uncertain future, having that built in resilience is really, really key. And so trees are a really important part of the whole system. Trees also have incredibly deep root systems. So it helps with water retention. So as we again go into a more climate uncertain future, the farms that have trees integrated into them are bringing more water down, storing them underneath and providing uh, a healthier, more resilient ecosystem for the entire farm as a whole. Oliver, you just mentioned pests, pest control management. And another farming practice is this concept of intercropping. What is the benefit of the purposeful planting of companion crops together and how does that have an overall positive environmental impact versus like well you could just use pesticides and herbicides it kind of goes back to the similar principle of diversity and in what you have is what you want to do is create a miniature ecosystem and you know the native americans knew this a lot of indigenous folks around the world have been doing this for a very long time. And the idea is that, you know, every time you put a, a plant in the ground, whether it's a perennial or an annual, uh, annuals, you've got to replant every year. Perennials come back every year. You plant them once, they come back every year. The idea with intercropping is that the health of the ecosystem is enhanced through time. Each plant is taking up different nutrients from the soil and exuding things back down into the soil. Some you know, take up a lot of nutrients, some put nitrogen back into the soil. So you're creating balance and healthy soil through time. If you just grow one plant, that specific plant, let's say corn, is taking up all of the same nutrients and putting down some of the same ones for the entire farm. Very quickly, that farm is going to be devoid of those nutrients, right? So if you have a system where you are intercropping, you are constantly replenishing the various nutrients in the soil. So again, if we go back to this idea of working with nature, resilience, regeneration, 
we want to farm in such a way that we are enhancing the ecosystem through time. Intercropping, agroforestry, permaculture are all really uh, excellent ways to do this. And all of those you know, different terminologies all kind of refer to this agroecological approach to farming, which is philosophically, how do we respect and work in harmony with nature? How do we set up systems to benefit the natural ecosystem, the food that's produced, the health of the food that's produced, pollinator habitats that, that creates, and then the benefit of human beings for interacting with that system? And I think one of the things I find really interesting with intercropping, or the one that you know my interest peaks, is that it just it offers natural systems or natural pesticide systems that you don't, you know, one plant might keep down one type of pest over the other, and you don't need all of these toxins and chemicals on your plants in order to make sure that they thrive. Exactly, exactly. And the thing is, is with a a huge field of corn, right? You've got one huge field of corn. One pest comes over to that field of corn and says, oh my gosh, it's a free buffet. Let me go tell the fellas. Goes back, gets his friends, and the entire crew comes and eats the entire thing of corn. That is not the case in an intercropping system because you have different pests, different predators in that system. And by the way, if a pest comes in and takes out your tomato crop, you've got six other crops that are okay. And so there is an ecological perspective here, but there's also a financial perspective. And what's good for the environment is good for the pocketbook. And we need to change the narrative around how that's perceived. Well, we're going to continue this conversation about changing that narrative. I'm going to talk to you about this other farming practice uh, when we get back from the break, this urban farming that's happening, a specific farm happening in Brooklyn. And uh, we'll, we'll, share more information in regards to the future of food. Please stay tuned and we'll be right back. Hey listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Friday at 4 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles and Sundays at 4 p.m. on KPFT Houston. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website. That's ecojusticeradio.org to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. For an extended version of this interview, as well as other benefits, we encourage you to become a member of our Patreon. Today, you are listening to Feeding Tomorrow, Transforming the Future of Food. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge, and our guest is Oliver English, co-founder and CEO of Common Table Creative and filmmaker, chef, and food advocate. Oliver, it's great to have you on the show. Before we went to the break, we were talking about different farming practices that you highlight in your documentary, Feeding Tomorrow. This third farming practice that I'd like you to speak to, I want you to highlight, is something that we've highlighted many, many times on this show, and that's the rise of urban farming. And maybe do so in sharing the example that's happening in Brooklyn, Brooklyn Grange, this this urban farm what's what's happening there and why is urban farming so important we had the privilege of interviewing uh, anastasia cole plackins who is one of the co-founders of brooklyn grange rooftop farm brooklyn grange rooftop farm is the largest soil-based rooftop farm in the united states they have they farm on several different rooftops i'm not sure the exact number now but multiple different rooftops in brooklyn which is incredible and 
they are, in my opinion, one of the most incredible and iconic uh, organizations who who is doing this. And what they're doing is, you know, taking taking space that was formerly, you know, completely wasted effectively and turning it into a miniature ecosystem. And that has profound impacts on the environment, on the communities. Not only are, I mean, they, they put in, I don't know how big it is, maybe a foot of soil on the rooftop, um, but they, are, they have a number of different pollinator flowers. You go up there and there's bees and butterflies and birds and things that you just do not see on the streets of Brooklyn or New York City or most cities. They are growing over 100,000 pounds of organic produce a year to supply through farmers markets to their local community. They reduce cool, you know, a farm like that on a rooftop reduces the cooling needs for a building. It reduces water runoff and helps with water retention. And it, and it provides a space for the community to come and interact with nature, with food production, you know, particularly children who grew up in cities who have never been to a farm, haven't been to a forest, you know, or kind of grow up in this concrete jungle. This is one of the refugee refuges that they have to go interact with food and farming. And it's a really beautiful thing. They have a program there where they actually bring kids from school to come up and learn about how food grows, uh, where it comes from, and how it sort of impacts the world around us. And for some of these kids, it's the first time they've been to a farm, um, which is not, per my story earlier, that ridiculous. But it has this multiple type of benefit. And also, you know, New York obviously can't grow food all year round, but if we were to do a massive situation like this in Los Angeles, we could definitely grow food all year round. And instead of food being grown really far away on container, you know, shipped in on whether it's planes or trucks or whatever it might be, you're producing a good amount of your food locally, like hyper locally, like on the building, and then you prepare it downstairs. So it is a multiple, it has a multitude of different benefits. And also I think it, shifts the narrative of where we need to go as a society. It creates more livable cities. You know, it, it helps to reduce heat and, and challenges from climate change, biodiversity, refuge. It has these multiple benefits, multiple interconnected benefits, and it makes a city significantly more beautiful. So you can't lose. And I'd like to see, and I hope we can inspire the rapid expansion and development of urban agriculture, rooftop, different urban lots around the country and around the world. That is a key part of the future of food. So true. Keeping it local is so incredibly positive and it provides that education that you don't get when you just go to the grocery store and, and buy your packaged food. Your, your film, again, Feeding Tomorrow, showcases three main people. I want to do a little story time on those individuals, share their great work. Those three individuals are Mark Shepard, who's a leading permaculture farmer, the nutritionist Lisa McDowell, and the charter school headmaster Thabiti Brown. Let's start with Mark Shepard first. Why was his story so compelling? Um, <clears throat> Mark is an absolute legend in the farming and permaculture community. He's very well known. He is very well studied. He's very well respected. And he took a 110 acre plot of land that was conventionally farmed with, with corn and soy. So intensive, intensive monocropping corn and soy for, you know, decades, a piece of land that no one wanted, a piece of land that said they couldn't farm because it had lots of hills and through a 25 year period 
through agroforestry, regenerative agriculture, and permaculture techniques, has transitioned it into what is considered to be one of North America's most advanced permaculture sites. And he has exhibited what is possible when we think, when we take this degraded land that no one wanted, that was used with chemicals. And when you go to this place, you are lost in this forest. It doesn't look like your conventional farm. And Mark's whole thing is redesigning the pattern of the landscape to capture all of the water possible, to channel the water as he wishes, and to produce food at multiple different levels, whether you know traditional crops on the ground, bushes, trees, all different types of crops, and also animals integrated into the systems. There are so many trees there now that it is a migration resting spot for a number of bird species from Central America. He's growing over 12 different types of crops all year round. He supplies tremendous amounts of food to a number of big wholesale distributors. And his farm is an example of what the future of food can look like, because he is both sequestering tremendous amounts of carbon in the soil through the practices and building incredible amounts of resilience to climate change. His farm operation requires no additional water because of the, from the outside, because of the way that he designed the land, managed the water, the flow, the ponds, the berms, the swales, there's a whole technical part to it. Because of the way that he's done that, he needs no water from the outside. And there are almost zero farms out there that can say that. And so as we talk about drought and these other challenges we face, that is the kind of thinking that we need. And so his story is powerful. And he is also himself a tremendous communicator and a beacon of like wisdom. You know, he, back in his house, he's got stacks and stacks of agriculture books. And he is just so passionate and knowledgeable, knowledgeable about this. One final point. His company, uh, Restoration Agriculture Development, he's got a whole consulting company as well, and he helps farmers and landowners around the world transition their land to permaculture, regenerative agroforestry systems. So he is a, a real legend in the community. Sounds amazing. I can't wait to see the documentary and, and hear his story even further and see the farm, see what he's doing there. Lisa McDowell. She's a nutritionist who spearheaded hospital farms. That sounds amazing. What is a hospital farm? Where are you seeing this and how are they being utilized? It is amazing. You're right. And we've all heard the old adage, you know, let food be thy medicine. And that was true for a long time in most cultures around the world. But it has not been true for the past 80 years, particularly in America, maybe a little bit longer. Lisa McDowell, I don't want to give away the whole story, but Lisa McDowell had a very intense experience where her dad came in. She's the head of nutrition at St. Joseph Mercy Healthcare System in, in Wisconsin. She's also the nutritionist for the Detroit Red Wings, the Detroit Lions, and has worked with a number of USA Olympic hockey teams and US Olympic athletes. So she is a incredibly renowned, epic nutritionist. Many years ago, uh, her father came into the hospital with pancreatic cancer, and she was just totally shocked by the experience. And she realized that the food in the hospital, which a lot of the first ingredients were high fructose corn syrup, were not going to make her dad better. And a lot of that food was actually the same food that on the outside was making him sick. And she developed a program, a nutrition program to heal him with whole food plants. 
and what different types of nutrients and what different types of plants turn on and off gene expressions that affect cancer. And she was able to heal her dad. And it became such a powerful movement for her that she ended up building the first working farm on a hospital campus in the United States, the first, which is shocking, but also quite visionary. And I, and I give her so much credit for that. And she was ultimately able to heal her dad. And the likelihood of healing someone with pancreatic cancer is like 5% after five years. Um, it's a really slim margin. And this, the program was so successful and it has blossomed into this whole um, like center of food distribution for the entire community. They are now growing foods specifically in healthy soils to help uh, heal patients, to reverse cancer and other chronic disease and other ailments, and also to set up preventative medicine for people before they get these issues. So they built a farmer's market in the, in the hospital lobby, and they are you know, helping patients heal with real food. And they have, like I said, they're able to reverse disease, they're able to prevent disease, and they're able to, and they have, you know, in a profound way, shifted the narrative about food as medicine. And other hospitals in that system, the Trinity Health System, are now piloting projects like that at different hospitals because it's been so popular. It's also a refuge. You know, a lot of doctors and other people in the hospital have little plots of land in and near the farm that they can just go and tend. And it's also kind of this mental health respite. You know, anyone who spent a long time in, ho in a hospital, I, and I'm sorry for that, but we can all attest that it's not the most pleasant place to be. Very sterile, very hospitally you know, bad lighting. And again, it's, it's horrible if you had to be there for any reason, but the farm offers this physical refuge and a really hopeful part of the solution. And now they incorporate a lot of those nutrient-dense, you know, disease-fighting foods into the hospital cafeteria. And it's a really powerful look at what the future of food looks like, what the future of health looks like, and how all that's connected. And just makes complete sense in the way that the healthcare should be working and exactly. compared to how our healthcare system is actually working right now. The other individual that I had mentioned and that you mentioned in your film is Thabidi Brown. They are the headmaster of a public charter school that's located in an underserved community in Boston, Massachusetts. Now, can you tell us about their work and, you know, what's happening? Tabidi is one of the most inspiring uh, individuals I've ever had the opportunity to meet. And we were lucky enough to go and film with him and his family and the school multiple times over a couple year period. And Thabiti and the other woman who started the school, Meg Campbell, had this vision for holistic education. And they opened up the Cobman Academy Charter Public School in Dorchester, which is in Boston, which is in a historically underserved community. You know, people used to call them food deserts. That's not really the term people like to use now because it suggests that there's not life there when there is life. You know, it's part of the system of food apartheid, which is what a lot of sort of food advocates are talking about now. And you know, if you've ever been to some of these neighborhoods, you, you it's really just corner stores and fast food places. And you really can't and don't have access to healthy food. Thabiti and their team opened up the Common Academy Charter Public School with this idea of creating a whole new vision for holistic health. So they built learning gardens in both the lower school and the middle school. They had nutrition classes. They have a no junk food policy. 
They raise extra funds outside what the federal government gives them, which is nominal, to bring in a chef. They have a farm-to-school grant program where they source local food from local farms in the Massachusetts area. And they have from scratch, you know, food prepared from scratch every day for these kids. And, you know, it's not all rainbows and butterflies. You still have, you know, kids who still want to go to McDonald's and they're teenagers. So, you know, there's a lot of challenges there, but the health outcomes are profound. And this school sits within a healthcare center as well. So these kids also have the opportunity to learn about healthcare, to learn about nutrition, and they then go back to their parents, their community with these new ideas. And as Thabiti says, it is an intentionally dualistic system where the kids are healthcare ambassadors. And you know, we interviewed a number of the kids as well, and their understanding of health and what that means, relationship to success in life, healthy outcomes is profound. And to do it in a neighborhood that is historically underserved is really is really something. So I think the future of education is not just, you know, math and science tests. It's not just English tests. We need to think holistically about educating the whole child. And, you know, having school farms and school gardens where kids can connect to plants and food and farming and composting is a huge part of creating not just healthier human beings, more access to healthy food, but also more conscientiously minded citizens and human beings around the world. You know, kids who grow kale eat kale, as Ron Finley famously said. And that is true. I've seen it on multiple occasions. So uh, they're providing the uh, educational framework and also the tangible experience for these kids to, to see the world differently through food. And before we go to break, I think that brings up um, a definition that I think that we need to, uh, or a couple words that we need to define, clarify, that when we talk about food access, it's not just people having access to food, but it's it, food access means access to healthy food and, and what that means within a social and environmental justice lens and how through institutional racism, you know, this has been stunted. So want to get your take on that before we go to the break. Absolutely. Saying that someone has access to what is available at the corner store is not food access. You know, if all you can access is things in a package, that is no good. That's BS, frankly. And what we really need to talk about is access to whole food, plants, and vegetables. And until we create a society and the conditions in our society where everyone has more readily available access to whole food plants and vegetables in season, we will not achieve the kind of perfect union that we aspire to as a nation. We just won't. Access to clean water, air, and healthy food, I believe, should be human rights. You know, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. You cannot do any of those things unless you are well. And our system has been set up in such a way that back to federal subsidies. The United States government and we, the taxpayers, not, not because I want to, but because of the way the system is set up, we are federally subsidizing the growth of corn and soy and wheat, which then are cheap baseline ingredients that go into processed food, junk food, animal feed. So what that does is that artificially deflates the, the price of the packaged goods the fast food burger, 
and everything in between. And so comparatively, organic vegetables, vegetables in season are not more expensive, but they are artificially more expensive because the alternative is so cheap. So, and one of the biggest challenges that the food system faces this idea is, oh, I can't eat healthy because it's more expensive. And that's true. And that is a systematic institutional challenge that we face. And so it's not fair to look at someone, a single mom or whatever, and say, hey, you just got to feed your kids healthy food. That's a completely unreasonable request until we change the system and we make those opportunities available to everybody. And until we do that at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level, we are failing our people. And so if we want to talk about if we want to talk about a healthy nation, if we want to talk about mental health, if we want to talk about fulfilling our promise as human beings and as a nation, we need to talk about access to healthy food. And that's got to be in every single neighborhood around the country. Full stop. Full stop. Exactly. Well, we're going to take a break real quick. And I, I have more questions for you. I want to, I want the answer to, you know, is it better to buy organic or is it better to buy local? Because that's, that's something that's on people's mind. You know, if they can afford the organic, is it better to buy one over the other? What are the role of the restaurants? What are the role of the chefs? And, and, and what can we all do? What are the solutions? Right? So we're going to, we're going to continue this conversation. We'll be right back. Hey listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Friday at 4 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles and Sundays at 4 p.m. on KPFT Houston. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website. That's ecojusticeradio.org to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. For an extended version of this interview, as well as other benefits, we encourage you to become a member of our Patreon. Today, you are listening to Feeding Tomorrow, Transforming the Future of Food. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge, and our guest is Oliver English, co-founder and CEO of Common Table Creative and filmmaker, chef, and food advocate. Oliver, we have been um, speaking about the stories in your documentary, the farming practices, these amazing humans and communities coming together and really focusing on the future of food and doing so in a, in a equitable and sustainable way. Now, the food that we get not only comes from the grocery stores, but it's in the restaurants that we visit. What role do, do chefs play in connecting the farmers and the consumers and what has the shift toward more sustainable practices looked like in the restaurant and gastronomy world? And I just want to remind our guests, our, our listeners, that you are a chef. And, you know, having grown up in the restaurant business and for so many years, really never asking these questions. And then now having spent years as a documentary filmmaker, really learning about them. I think my perspective has shifted a little bit, but I, I think. Chefs play a critical role as these cultural ambassadors that connect what's going on in the farm to the regular consumer. And they set the trends in many ways. They kind of determine what's cool, what is going to work. And as much as we want to talk about sustainability and sourcing from all these great farms and all this, and that's all great, it does not matter if it is not delicious. 
And if people, it's the, it's just the reality of the situation. And if the food that we're talking about coming from these farms is not delicious, people will not care. And in my experience, talking to people, do they care about the environmental impact or the health or the flavor? It really has to do with the flavor, their own personal health and the environmental impact in that order. And so, okay, that's fine. Let's work with that. We also know that, and the more chefs are becoming aware of this, that the food and the plants or animal protein or whatever the ingredients might be that are coming from the healthiest farms, the plants that come from the healthiest soils are the most nutrient dense and are the most flavorful. And therefore, that is going to be the best for the plate. So chefs, I think, historically have known that ingredients are important. That's an understatement, to say the least. But I think that now there is a whole new equation in the realization of the existential threat that we face related to climate, food systems, heat waves, you know, all of the things. And I think more and more young chefs are waking up to the fact that they play a critical role in bringing in these ingredients and supporting the farmers that are doing the right thing and then creating dishes that change the way people view the world. And that's not to be overly grandiose, but it is a really critical part of this whole system. And I've seen, you know, a good example of this is I used to work at a restaurant called 11 Madison Park uh, in New York City. It was at a time the number one restaurant in the world on the San Pellegrino list of best restaurants. Incredible restaurant. You know, it's absolutely amazing. Six years ago, they went fully vegan or five years ago, they went fully vegan. And it was, it sent ripples through the entire food industry. This place was famous for their lavender roasted duck, et cetera, et cetera. And what that says to me is Chef Daniel Hume took a big risk and said, I see the environmental impacts here. I see that vegetables are important. I'm going to change things to the highest level. The day they changed, reservations went up to 15,000 wait list. And so we are seeing at all different levels in the restaurant industry, chefs recognizing that they have a critical role to play in communicating the importance of creating a sustainable food system. And the way that you do that, first and foremost, is to create delicious dishes that come from the best farms. And like we said, and as Mark Shepard says in the farm, in the film, <laughs> healthy so the healthier soils means healthy plants, healthy animals, healthy people. It's just the way it is. It works that way. And so the more restaurants and chefs we have saying, I want to support this farmer because they're doing the right practices, the better our food system is going to be. And the role of between the chef and the restaurant is different, right? I mean, because the restaurant itself is many times a, a bit more front facing. And I want to sort of preface this with, can can it be affordable? Because I think when when people are talking about, well, the chef does this and the chef does that, well, not many of us are going to Michelin star restaurants, right? Where many of us are not following a chef. We're just going to the restaurant in our neighborhood that we like. And if it becomes something that is not affordable anymore because the choices, the more, quote, sustainable choices have priced it out of market, then people are not going to go there. They're going to go where they can afford. So what's the role of the restaurant in this and still providing something that is accessible to the greater community? Question. And 
you know, restaurants are historically, and I can attest to this, a very low margin business. You know, uh, most restaurants fail after their first year. Most don't make very many money. Some do. So it is challenging for restaurants. And historically, restaurants have just wanted to get the cheapest ingredient in and make the most amount of profit. And as a former restaurateur, you know, I understand that perspective. You know, you've got to pay payroll. You've got to do your food costs. You've got to do electricity. You've got to do all these things. Um, that being said, I would also say that restaurants respond to consumers. And consumers have a very pivotal role to play in this whole system. When I was in the restaurant business, there was a rule that was taught to me by one of our older managers. And it was, if someone comes in and makes a comment about, hey, why'd you take the salmon off the menu? Why are you using plastic straws, et cetera? We assumed that there was probably 10 to 15 other people, maybe 20, who were thinking it, who didn't want to say it because they just didn't want to cause a fuss. If two people made that same comment, we made a note in this little book. Maybe 40, 50 people were thinking it. If three people made that same comment, we made the change. And it might be, hey, are you sourcing locally? Do you compost, et cetera? The point of that story is that restaurants respond to consumers, businesses respond to consumers, politicians respond to constituents. And until we as, as the consumers start asking questions and, and take an active role in this whole system, it's not going to change as fast as we as we want. And so this is really the future of food is really a partnership with the people who are eating, the people who are preparing the food, and particularly the people who are growing the food and transporting the food, saying, we want to do things differently. And most restaurants, if they can, they want to source local ingredients. You don't want to be sourcing ingredients that come from far away because just as a, at a plain level, those ingredients are going to be really sad looking. As soon as you cut a head of lettuce, that produce starts to die. So it is restaurants are incentivized to have the best local seasonal produce as much as possible and some are on that track some are not quite there yet and that's just kind of where we are i would say increasingly there are more that are doing that and we've also seen the emergence of not a, you know it's not a michelin star restaurant but let's think about sweet green right you know as just an example there's a lot of fast casual restaurants even chipotle and you may say what you will about these two places i'm not endorsing them completely but i'm saying they are both hyper-focused on sourcing, and they have been for some time. And if you go into a sweet green, you see the farms that they source from. And that's not a Michelin star restaurant. You know, it's not the cheapest option, but it is more affordable generally, you know. And so I think we're seeing a shift in the industry from just the high, the top of the line restaurants making that available to more fast casual restaurants making that available. There's another yeah. company called Every Table that produces healthy local meals at a more affordable price. So, so let's talk about organic certification. You brought it up and I've heard some pushback that it's not what it used to be or it doesn't go far enough in protecting from certain toxins, that it's changed over the, word, the, the years. Some say that it makes no difference when compared to conventional farming. And then there's the cost to farmers to even get the organic certification. So I, I, it's, a, it's a much longer conversation, but as brief as you can be in answering this, is organic certification still relevant? I believe that organic certification is still relevant. It is true that the certification has been watered down over the years, uh, but it is still a solid benchmark. 
it is not the most sustainable that is out there. These ideas of permaculture, biodynamic farming, regenerative agriculture, agroforestry are all sort of on the higher level of sustainability and regeneration. We, there is not a you know, FDA label for those yet. So it's not as easy to readily identify them in the store. That being said, you can generally be assured that there's limited or no use of you know, chemicals, toxic chemicals on that food, which is great. Uh, there are some organic operations that are better than others, but I think the 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 key here and where there in the, where the, where there is an opportunity is to use the gray area as an opportunity to create a more direct relationship with the people that are producing your food, and that's not always possible in every part of the country. But if you go to a farmer's market, for example, and you don't need to you know, buy all your groceries there, but if you go get one or two things of produce there, you know, once a week or once a month or whatever it is, you can ask those questions to the farmer. And for so long, we have been so disconnected intentionally from the people growing our food and how it's being grown. It shows up in the grocery store and you're like, oh, this is good. This is not good. Well, we, I think, need to get back into the habit of and, and have the perspective of is how do we start to look into the eyes of the farmer again? And not to overly romanticize that, but let's go to the farmer's market. Let's ask questions. Let's go to the grocery store. Let's ask the produce manager. Um, ask questions and be curious. And I think that's a really key part of this. You know, it's tr- it's you know it's true that some foods are less bad or, or better to eat organic than not. You know, the things that have sort of a natural shell, the avocado or banana, that kind of thing. I think generally try to avoid uh, non-organic food particularly produce as much as possible, because you really just don't know the kinds of toxic chemicals that are in there. But so organic is better than the alternative, but it's still, I think there's another level that we can get to that is going to be better. That leads into another question that I have for you, which is the dirty dozen. What is the dirty dozen? You just talked about vegetables or fruits that sometimes are better to buy organic versus non-organic. So, I mean, the, the the dirty dozen really refer to the fruits and vegetables that generally don't have as much of a of a shell or sort of a natural protective layer, like a banana, for example. So, things that you're just going to eat right out of the box, right out of the bag, right out of the box. You know, like strawberries or grapes or cherries. You know, th- these kinds of things that you can do a little rinse off, but it's you know these chemicals are in there and it's hard to remove them. You know. Those are the ones that I would definitely never eat inorganically if you can. When there is an option, it is, I would prioritize, I guess, not, you know, prioritize having those organic versus the other versus the other things like bananas and things that have a little bit more of a protective layer. That being said, I think anytime we are spraying chemicals on food, uh, it's pretty dirty and it should be avoided. I, I think yes. that it is, you know, just, uh, the 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 place that we have gotten to where we have so normalized the use of large scale chemicals that are again derived from fossil fuels made in Russia or wherever spraying on our crops in huge volumes is inexcusable and we know how to do it a better way i've talked to a number of farmers who say look i want my child to be able to go out into the field and pick a strawberry and not have to wear a hazmat suit and that feels pretty reasonable to me. You know, that does feel pretty, I mean, that, that, that feels pretty reasonable to me. And so 
I think that we should not accept the fact that we should not accept as a humanity the fact that we are using so many chemicals and we need new systems of farming that reduce or completely eliminate any use of chemicals. Is it better to buy my food locally without organic certification or is it better to always buy organic certified even if the farm is out of the state or the country? A million dollar question. And I think the answer is it's not one answer. And again, it really, it really, I think it really depends. On, it's a case by case situation. If you are sourcing organic produce from the other side of the country, and the carbon footprint associated with that is pretty high. I would say that's a different situation than you know organic produce coming from the next state over that's being trucked in. For for example, the the key here as well is seasonality, and that's a key factor that we have gotten away from. We have become so used to, myself included, I, I'm not impervious to this. We've become so used to having blueberries all year round, strawberries all year round, avocados all year round. And so we have to make those kinds of choices. Historically, you know, with seasonality, you eat what is in season. And so everything's local. And so when you eat things that are in season, you're automatically eating locally. And I think that's a big part of this conversation we need to have as well. Because chances are, if you're flying something, if you're flying something in from far away, that's really organic, it's probably not in season. And that has a number of other challenges as well. So I would encourage everyone to consider the seasonality of these different fruits and vegetables and have a melon during the summer, not all year round. And there's something that is special yeah. about that. There's something special about that. We have a few more questions and a few more minutes uh, before we wrap the radio version of this show. Uh, however, we have our extended version on that people can get that people can listen to at ecojusticeradio.org and we're going to ask you a few more questions so people this conversation is going to continue so definitely go over to our website and and listen in what effect do you hope your documentary will have i hope that our documentary inspires people to see themselves as part of the change and to see the food system as a powerful vehicle for addressing the biggest interconnected challenges we face and above all, I want to inspire hope. So much of the environmental challenges we face, so much of the narrative around, uh, you know, being more green or turning the lights off or going electric vehicle, all these things are great. But so much of the narrative has been about how do we do less bad? And the narrative needs to shift, in my opinion, to how do we do more good through our actions? And our food system presents a tangible, powerful, and realistic uh, daily opportunity to showcase how we can have a positive impact on the world around us through the food that we eat, through the farms that we support, through the farmers that we support. And that is a powerful realization. And last couple questions for you here. Are there any calls to action that you want to leave people with? I'd love for you all to listen, watch our film. Do that one again. Start the start the sentence and then repeat it because it just cut you completely off. Calls to action. Uh, watch the film. Keep a lookout for Feeding Tomorrow when it is out in uh, late fall. Um, in terms of the individual calls to action from the film, you know, we lay out a couple at the end from you know simple things like planting some food and flowers in your front yard to buying things in season. Going to the farmer's market, you know, once or twice a month, 
eating more, you know, putting plants kind of at the center of your plate. If you do have meat, really asking questions about where that comes from. We didn't get into meat production today, but, you know, industrial meat versus regenerative is a very different system of farming and has very different impacts. And compost, it's one of the, the lowest hanging fruits that you can do. But also, please uh, follow the Feeding Tomorrow Instagram, and we will keep you updated. You can follow, also follow my personal Instagram, Oliver English. We share stories and updates on the film, what we're doing, our impact campaign, and a lot of other tidbits there as well. Well, Oliver, you just answered my last question, which is where can people follow you and your efforts and how do they see the film? So again, everyone, we're going to continue this conversation. So visit our website at ecojusticeradio.org to hear the extended version. Oliver, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you to our guest, Oliver English, co-founder and CEO of Common Table, creative and filmmaker, chef, and food advocate. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. This has been Feeding Tomorrow, Transforming the Future of Food. For an extended version of this interview, become a member of our Patreon or visit our website at ecojusticeradio.org. Please connect with us on social media. You can find us at Eco Justice Radio, SoCal 350, and Adventures in Waste. And if you like what you heard and you want others to be informed, then you know what to do. Subscribe, share the episodes, and help us continue our efforts by joining our Patreon or making a tax-deductible donation to the show. A project of SoCal 350 and Adventures in Waste, the show can be found on KPFK, KPFT, all major podcast apps, and at ecojusticeradio.org. Executive producer Jack Eye, producer and co-host Jessica Aldridge, co-host Carrie Kim, and engineer and original music by Blake Quake Beats. And until next time, remember, the power is yours.